Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM. More than a podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. As Birds of a Feather returns to ITV for a Christmas lockdown special, we're talking exclusively to the show's creators as we kick off a new series about comedy writing legends. From Birds to Goodnight Sweetheart, via Rick Mail and The New Statesman, Lawrence Marks and Morris Gran are among the masters of British comedy. They've been giving a comprehensive interview about their careers to Ashley from their base in the Cotswolds. So let's talk about Rick Mail and the New Statesman then. Tell us the story. How did all that start? How did you, uh, you know, where did the, the idea of the New Statesman come from? After Harvey Moon finished... ATV. We went off to the states for for six months or so to to, to, to try our try our luck there. That's another story. And we came back at the end of '85, and we were invited to a big ITV comedy symposium, symposium we might call it, or conference at in Cheltenham, ironically or bizarrely or coincidentally, where I ended up living many years later. And Rick was there, and we knew his work, we'd gone to the comic strip really almost from the first opening night because our agent's husband was one of the guys who who set it up. So we knew Rick and we thought Rick was brilliant. We also thought he was balmy, seemed to be balmy. So when we met him at this comedy in Cheltenham and he sidled up to us, he was wearing a long black coat with an astrakhan collar and a Homburg hat, hoping to be taken for, for Tony Hancock. So we knew he was perfectly normal. And he, he asked us if we'd be interested in writing for him because we'd worked with Nigel on two shows and, obviously, and Rick was looking for something new. I think, I think the young ones had finished by then. We both agreed he was clearly crackers and we didn't want anything to do with him. So we promised to call him, but knew we wouldn't. About two months later, we were invited onto the Terry Wogan show when it was three nights a week to talk about our experiences in America. And Rick happened to be there plugging Living Dull, which was the first comic strip stroke comic relief record. Young ones, yeah, but it it became the comic relief record. He saw us and he said, you were supposed to phone me, you bastards. So we had no choice but to take him out for lunch. And when we took him out for lunch, and he turned up looking very smart in a suit, and we thought, actually, he's quite a good-looking bloke. Not that I fancied him, he's a bit young for me. But he, he, um, we had lunch and we said, all right what sort of character do you want to play? If we were to write something for you, what sort of character would you want to play? And he said, I, I like playing characters who exaggerate my own worst traits. I want to play someone who is violent, depraved, mean, jealous, nasty, greedy. and With lots of sex. With lots of said. sex. And I said, you want to play a Tory backbencher then? And... He liked the idea, although he wasn't very political. Um, no, he wasn't party political. And we, and in the meantime, in the in the period of time between meeting him when he was channeling Tony Hancock and meeting him again at that conference, we'd got very 
friendly with Vernon Lawrence, who was head of comedy at Yorkshire TV and one of the real, you know, proper old-fashioned comedy impresarios that were to be found in TV then. And he was raving about Rick. He'd seen Rick in the government inspector at the National Theatre and thought Rick was the best thing since Leonard Rossiter. So when we had this idea, we offered it to Yorkshire, um, not because we had any previous connection with Yorkshire. You know, if we hadn't met Vernon, we might have offered it to... The, the BBC would have been the obvious place to take it because it was Paul Jackson who brought Rick along and Paul was at the BBC. So that was the the birth of the New Statesman. And it was very timely because Thatcher had just won the 87 election, her third... It's not quite as timely as it would be today if Rick was alive because, of course, Trump has taken his entire act from Alan Bastard and Johnson wishes he was Alan Bastard. Um, but, you know, someone described to me Johnson as having combed his hair with a toffee apple, <laughs> which I rather like. Anyway, that aside, so... Now, of course, you can tell me a bit more about working with Rick in, in a moment, but um, just thinking about the filming of The New Statesman, um, the the set that was used, the, the House of Commons set, uh, had been used, hadn't it, for um, First Among Equals? Yeah, it was over in Granada, that, to bring it across the Pennines. At uh, great expense, it was like Hannibal. It was built in a warehouse opposite Yorkshire Television HQ. And so we did all our shooting of the House of Commons stuff in one hit, in this huge, huge set. Although I think the sec, I think subsequent series they built their own because it was cheaper than hiring Granada's in, and that's why I think the eagle-eyed will notice that the but there is one fewer row of back benches in series two than there is in series one. I don't mm. know if it still exists. It was a it was a great set, and we had um, Rene Short, who was former MP for Wolverhampton, as our parliamentary advisor telling the extras of whom there's sort of 40 or 50 extras you know who were supposed to be backbenchers that they were behaving too well they weren't shouting enough of being disruptive enough that she didn't think the speaker was loud or commanding enough Um, so we had you know so that was so that was that and then the way we worked it really well Rick was obsessed with laughter that was the first thing so whatever you wrote and it was very funny as you know Rick would say, could I have another 12 laughs on page 9? To which we one day said to him, Rick, there's more laughs on page 4 than there is in any other ITV or BBC series. But it still was never enough. And then he would read uh, the page and say, well, I can get you another 8 laughs here. And we said, we're not writing anything else. He said, no, you don't have to write anything. I'll just get you 8 more laughs. Geoffrey Sachs, the director, the brilliant, brilliant director said, we did one episode where we were in rehearsals and Rick was at a window when he heard that Piers Fletcher Dervish was sitting on a, a committee viewing pornographic films as to what to ban or not. And Jeff said, I said to Rick, it might be a good idea if you turn around. And Rick said, no, forget that. I'll give you three laughs before I have to open my mouth. He said, one, when the word pornographic, he looked over his shoulder and sneered. 
Then he turned around and got a second laugh. Then he delivered his line and got the third laugh. He was just quite instinctive. He was like no one else we've ever worked with. Of course, he was gifted and, and, and people say a comic genius. And I think he was. I, I, I think Rick never knew when to stop. The thing was, Rick was on permanent speed, comic speed. And, but a, a more polite and giving actor you couldn't wish to meet. Uh, well, I met him and, yeah, um, <laughs> he wasn't supposedly acting at the time, but, um, but yeah, he, he was definitely a bit bonkers, wasn't he? He was, he was like five litres uh, uh, engine against other people's one and a half. He was just working. It also depends when you met him, you see. I mean, after his accident, he wasn't really the same. He had a lot of problems. You know, he'd had a head injury and that affected him. He was on medication, that affected him. He'd lost his line learning ability to some degree. That depressed him. At his peak, he was incredible. He worked very hard. He rehearsed longer than anyone else. He was also a choreographer. And, and I mean, he was a comedy choreographer. He would keep people behind. Not that they would want to go home, just to work out the choreography of a particular... And it showed, and it showed. And, of course, what was happening was is that Morris and I were saying each week, or each planning series, what is the worst possible thing we can think a politician can do? Let's just go for it. And then, of course, everything we were thinking up was happening six weeks later in the Real House of Cards. And that's why the show became such a huge success. And even in the paper last week, I think Morris brought it this morning, there was a headline in the Daily Star with Rick's picture on, or something like, what a bastard. Uh, Even now, he won't go away. Yeah, he's he's still in the uh, national consciousness, isn't he? Now, before we started recording, you were telling me a particular story uh, 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 about Rick. Do you you want to bring that up again? Yeah, Rick drank too much. That was the first thing. I mean, he enjoyed drinking for him was a sport, really. We didn't drink very much. Others in the show had a drink, but Rick had many drinks. So, of course, after he'd had, when he came off of the, when he'd made, we'd done the recording, we'd all meet in the bar, you know, afterwards. He'd go off to his dressing room and have a shower and the floor manager would have lined up on the on the bar three Carlsberg Extra Strongs and three Double Grouses. And he'd knock those six drinks away and then begin the evening. So, of course, when he said, why don't we play... Let's spin the revolving door of the hotel as fast as you possibly can and let's see who can get their head caught in it. And you'd think, this man's completely off his trolley. Or, as I say, one day we were up on his, in his room on the fifth floor, he said, there's a ledge outside my window that leads to other windows. Let's see who can walk furthest along the ledge without falling over. Mind you, he'd had a lot to drink by this time. And then what would happen in the middle of an evening... He'd collapse. But he'd only collapse in front of a beautiful woman. So the beautiful woman said, Oh, Rick, uh, shall I get you back to your room? And he'd say, Yeah, all right. (laughs) And this would happen. I mean, Rick did drink too much. In fact, he drank so much in... At one point, we rang his agent up and said, If you want to continue this show, then will you please tell Rick not to come at 10 o'clock in the morning for an idea session with a half bottle of Hague in his pocket. And she did. She told him all. 
But you know, he he was he, he was a joy to work with, and and you know, everyone's flawed. We, we, and that we was were his we were you know shocked and not surprised when he died. We're also very honoured to have worked with him and given him this political series like no other. I know people talk about Yes Minister, which is brilliant, and the thick of it, which is brilliant, but that's really not about a politician. That's about Whitehall. Mm. And so politicians look to Bastard to see how to be Bastard. And of course, weeks after, what happened was it? Weeks after we'd re- it started going out, Morris came in with a Guardian one morning, explain. Yeah, I, the, it was a picture from the annual conference of the Conservative Student Federation, and they all looked like Alan. Uh, <laughs> so much so that I was convinced that Rick was in the picture. They were all yeah. jumping up and down in their three-piece pinstripe suits with their sort of hair carefully waved behind their ears, and I'm thinking, this is like the revenge of Frankenstein. And, and when, we, when we did a book of... Um, of scripts, we went to sell the scripts on a stall at the Tory Party conference. We shared a stall with Cecil Parkinson, who and, had just done what Alan Bastard uh, was and, 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 and people were saying to us, "Oh, if only he were real." And were you at the lunch with Geoffrey Archer's lunch? I went to when he invited you. Me, I, I don't think you were there. And um, we were we were sitting. Michael Portillo had invited me to Geoffrey Archer's party conference lunch, which had to be the grandest, of course, because it was Geoffrey Archer. And Margaret was there. And after lunch, she got up and Michael, who at that time, I think, was in Minister of Defence, had brought her over to the table. I was sitting up with Michael and Geoffrey, who knew everyone. He was like David Frost. He knew everyone's name. Said, and this is Lawrence Marks. He's a writer of The New Statesman. And she just walked straight past me. She wanted nothing whatsoever to do with me. I had, I had cursed her party by creating Alan Bastard. But I often wonder now, you talk about Rick, if Rick would have been alive and well, whether or not we would have now done New Statesman. Well, we talked about rebooting it a few years ago. Not without Rick. And, and, um, that, but we couldn't cast it. Um, no one would dare play. There was no actor who was prepared to play Son of Bastard. And I understood exactly why, because how can you follow Rick Mayle? And perhaps it was good that Bastard finished when he finished, which was in Europe, uh, predicting what would happen has happened. We've got a lot to thank Bastard for. No, no, he he definitely uh, caught the moment, didn't he? Uh, When you were saying about him, you know, the Windledge incident, did... um... Did he actually go through with that? Oh, no, I don't think he ever got out. But I did see him do some crazy... And I saw him drinking more than I've ever seen anyone drink in one evening. He had his six drinks. Well, that was that was just to get the dust out of his mouth. And then he had a couple of bottles of wine. He drank on his own, almost, a bottle of sake. Then he had two large brandies. This was all over the course of a meal. He had an enormous appetite for everything, for life, for experience. When he was told he couldn't drink anymore after his accident, he just stopped. But then he started drinking coffee, espresso by, you know, a dozen cups of espresso a day because he was just a sensualist. You know, he wanted to experience something. He wanted to push himself. Um, Women but, loved him. But, yes, he was very giving. I don't mean that in a... In a he lived life to the full. He did live life to the full. And, you know, he loved walking around the street and being recognised and 
you know, he was a bit too, you know, he, he missed the selfie season, really, because, you know, if someone said, oh, my God, you're Rick Mail, he'd say, yes, I am. I've made your day, haven't I? He, <laughs> he, he relished, he relished his life, which was fantastic. He was great to work with, and we're pleased we did. Yeah, we yeah. did three series in Westminster and one in, Europe, in, in uh, Brussels. Well, Tim Vincent, um, you know, former Blue Preta presenter, tells me that uh, when he was uh, a young actor doing, uh, I think it was Children's Ward um, at Granada, Rick Mail came in and I think uh, Tim was having his uh, his makeup and costume done and that kind of thing. And Rick Mail was sat near, very near him and the uh, the, the, the makeup uh, lady um, knew that Tim was a fan of Rick Mail and said, well, why don't you just go and talk to him and ask him for his autograph to be fine. And um, I think uh, Tim went up to him and uh, in typical uh, Rick Mail fashion, he, Rick just turned around to him and said, fuck off. And, uh, um, but a little while later, of course, he, he did uh, he did give him his uh, his autograph. Of course. Well, I know there's a famous there's a famous um, letter that Rick wrote, which which pops up now and again on social media that someone wrote Rick a letter and saying, would you send me an autograph? You know that I can show my my my. my I'm getting married next week, and my, and no one, you know, every old big fancy. Or he wanted an autograph anyway. So Rick wrote back and said, "You utter utter bastard! How dare you get married and not invite me, you bastard! I'm going to come round there and I'm going to shag your wife behind your back. That will teach you." And of course, this letter is now this bloke's pride possession. Fabulous, and in a way, apart from bottom being repeated. Um, occasionally, or actually quite a bit, to be honest. But there's not really been that many sort of big tributes to to Rick Mail and his his memory, has there? There's nothing finer they could do for Rick's memory than to repeat the whole of the New Statesman in prime time. So <laughs> topical, no one would understand the word. I know, but my accountant would be very happy with that. He doesn't. <laughs> we'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on it. It only takes structure. And, and you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, oh, yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, yeah. Me, we all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We're gonna have this like Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I gotta lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I gotta lie, don't play with it. Play with it. No. Take that shit. Christmas on distinct nostalgia. When I ran out of children's books, I used to read from Woman's Home. Who knew a four-year-old would be gripped by an article on cross-stitch? We're uniting the ages with Generation Games, a series of comedy and drama monologues and duologues coming exclusively to distinct nostalgia. Stories exploring connections, friendships and relationships between people across different age groups, beginning with Missing You, starring June Brown and Sam Barnard. I like her, I said. And then, silence. Pity that social worker of his can't do something useful for a change. Contact the noise abatement lot. Put in a complaint. I didn't want to be a lawyer, but what can you do? Missing You by Richard Vergette. 
with the legendary June Brown this Christmas, only on Distinct Nostalgia. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. So let's turn to Goodnight Sweetheart then. And um, I have to say, out of all those um, comedies that they were um, trialling out as uh, potential uh, to bring back um, a little while ago, I thought that the one that was obvious really to bring back was Goodnight Sweetheart because the world's changed so much you know, in terms of technology and all sorts of things that there was so much material to go at. Well, you won't get an argument from us. <laughs> and, you know... Well, Goodnight Sweetheart is a series more than any other we've written where we get letters three, four times a week saying, when is it coming back? When is it coming back? When is it... You know, what happened to that 90, uh, 2016 special? Why and, you know, we still feel, or the, you know, John Rolfe, the executive producer at Fremantle, he's still, he's very dogged. He says, we will get it back. We need, you know, we were a little bit unlucky. We're told, this may be complete hearsay, that when BBC very proudly did these reboots, the controller of BBC went to Edinburgh expecting to get a lot of, Pats on the back, and instead got savage for doing, you know, remolds. And so, the only show they brought back was Dick and Ian's, which we believe they were more or less committed to. Anyway, I think they'd committed to that before they decided to put it in the package. But so, uh, it's, it's so, like with the start, going back to what we were saying earlier. Who follows Ronnie Barker? Yeah. So, so really, with this, yes, it was. We were very. We were very pleased with the uh, with how it worked. That instead of it being a man of the present who goes back into the past, it's now a man of the past who comes forward into the present. And he uh, uh, and of course we gave him a daughter, so he had a reason to come to come back, come forward, to come forward. And also, of course, we realised it was fact, also the only one with the complete yeah. original and, cast. And we realised that that um, was pointed out to us that. He was now going to run slap bang into the problem that he was the Beatles had arrived, and he claimed to have written most of their songs. So it was great. It was great fun. We'd love to to still do some. Um, before COVID happened, we were on the verge of also doing it as a stage musical, and when all this madness is over, that might still happen. But yes, it's, it was a show we had enormous joy making. It was so easy in one respect to write because when you've got two time zones, two periods, if you like, your, two, your A plot and your B plot are just there for the plucking. You haven't got to think, oh, the A story is he wants to buy a new car and he's got no money and the B story is the dog keeps pissing on the carpet and how are you going to... You know, it was much easier than that. Last weekend, Morris and I should have been guests of honour at the annual Goodnight Sweetheart convention, which was to take place in Great Yarmouth. And um, unfortunately, of course, it couldn't happen. It might next year. I think it will next year. year. But uh, what was interesting is that watching... I watch Goodnight Sweetheart. It's the only one of our series that I watch. And it's also on Forces TV every night. But I watched an episode where Noel Coward was teaching Reg Deadman to dance. It was the most funny scene with no words. 
And uh, at the convention last weekend, the two of them were going to yeah. reprise that oh, scene. Oh, really? Yeah. But we were very, again, that was a great cast. David Benson's a friend of mine. Yes. Uh, and he's brilliant, isn't he? Well, we he's, love David Benson. And we, that, we discovered David well, yeah, but, in many ways because we went to Edinburgh. He'd broken up with his partner that morning and he didn't want to go on stage to do the Kenneth Williams show. He went, my wife went to see it and came back and said to us, like, you've got to go and see this show. It's the best show in, I've seen in years. And we went to see David Benson. He was outstanding. And we went backstage afterwards and said, that was astonishing and you're astonishing. He said, come and have lunch with us, dear boy. And we said, Can you, do you do anyone other than Kenneth Williams? He said, I'll do whoever you want. And we said, well, would you do Noel Coward? And he said, yes. And we said, then we're going to write you into the next series of Good Night Fear. And I and see we, David. No, we do. We're great friends with him. We don't see him very often, but we, we do see him. He had, he's fantastic company. And he knows everything there is to know about Noel Coward, doesn't he? Yes, he knows everything. And he, and he, he was such a good Noel Coward. And he did, he did the Frankie Howard thing he did, which was like full circle for us. And of course, he's been doing this stage thing, hasn't he, for a while now? You know, where he uh, does the all the Dad's Army characters. Yes, oh, that's brilliant. Yes, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Just the yes, I, I saw it last year. He came to. Tewkesbury, which is a theatre that I'm on the board of. He's a great talent. He's a great talent. And I don't know why. I mean, he's always working and he's always highly esteemed, but he's not really known outside of the profession the way he should be. He's terrific. The good thing about Good Night's Theatre is you could do what you like. So when we decided in, I think, Series 2 or something, that Gary's songs were going to be sold to George Formby, we brought George Formby in with his wife, when we said that they, they're bombed out the East End and go and move in the West End, why shouldn't they move into the same block that Noel Coward lives? And you would just and people love this conceit. I think people love anything which has got the whiff of sci-fi. You know, I mean, I can't move on Twitter without people having rows about which is the best episode of Doctor Who. And, 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 which, and I keep wanting to say, well, I, like, I liked Doctor Who too when I was a child. But... But I'm not going to get involved in that conversation. No, 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 no. Um, I, I mean, the thing about bringing it back, uh, I mean, it's what, I, like I say, I, I just think there was so much mileage um, in the the differences in the generations and things. Because, you know, I'm 48 and I've known a period, of course, when there wasn't all the technology, but I've got used to it in recent years. But even now... I'm getting to a point whereby I'm getting more and more stressed out with it. And there's so many complications, so many bureaucracies, so many things you can do and you can't do that are linked to technology and the the constant um, things going wrong all the time and how it controls your lives. There's so much to explore, isn't there, really? Yeah, no, it's, it, is, it, is, it is extraordinary. And I mean, you know, even compared to four, five years ago, I mean, I don't think there were... For example, were there Bluetooth speakers? You know, now I've got an Echo Dot, which is basically the size of a tin of boot polish, which is probably as good as the hi-fi I paid £1,000 for when I first got a decent job. And when Gary goes into a house and someone turns that on, he'll be so freaked out of his nuts. Well, he was. I mean, there was so much going on that he couldn't understand. You know, a mobile phone that's in fact a more powerful computer than that, that launched... 
the Apollo no. 12, no, 11. It would be it would be a delight. I think the to BBC were very embarrassed by it because it got such a fantastic. I mean, everyone in the press and on social media was saying, "God, we're lo- so looking forward to this series." We're looking, and I think the BBC got very well, embarrassed I, I by think, the fact yes. that they'd made the decision before they put it out. Got good viewing figures too. But you know, just to say that birds of a feather goes to prove that anything can come back. I mean, obviously, we'll be known as the two old codgers who spend their twilight years recycling all their old hits, but I don't care. Well, we can't finish, of course, without talking a bit about the star of Goodnight Sweetheart, um, Nicholas Lindhurst. Um, uh, and how many, how many shows, how many Goodnight Sweethearts were there? About 60, about 60. Uh-huh. Tell us a bit about working with Nicholas then. Well, he's a very private man. Um, he's... Well, there were two Nicholases. There was a Nicholas of 2016 and there was a Nicholas... Yes, I mean, yes. It, it, when, we, when we worked with him again, you know, he, he, he'd been in the meantime married and become a dad. And of course, we know what a terrible tragedy has happened since then. Unspeakable, unspeakable tragedy. But, you know, he was a very private guy. Um, and... A fantastic actor, great worker, knew exactly how much to do on camera and total, total pro. But didn't, not someone who was very, you know, we didn't socialise with him the way we socialised with Rick. He was such a private guy, you know, that, as I said, if Rick's walking down the street and he sees someone, recognise him, he's delighted. And if he don't recognise him, he'd go and say, don't you know who I am? Yes. Nick was the opposite. You know, he'd come out of his house with his baseball cap, cap on, Dark and if he cross. saw anyone, particularly paparazzo, he'd rather walk 10 miles than give the guy a shot. When we met him again, more, I mean, we met him a few times recently because his uh, agent is also, we were also working with as a producer, so... We've been to two or three stage productions that Nick's been in in the last few years, and he had had mellowed um, and grown into his family life. And of course, you know, I am, as you can tell, I am literally, literally speechless about what happened to to, to Archie. And uh, you know, it's something it's very hard to Im- to imagine people recovering from. People do recover from the terrible, terrible tragedies, but it's. It's beyond it's beyond tough, but he was a delight to work with, and the whole cast were, particularly the four girls. The, the, well, I was thinking, everyone was. I was nice. thinking really, you know, and because I'm now, you know, it's past my bedtime now. I want to say Reg Deadman because I've forgotten his real name, Chris. Yes. Chris. What we can say, Ashley, is that we have been blessed with working some of these fantastic actors, who have read our words as we could not have yeah, imagined yeah. them being read when we were writing yeah. them. You can't ask for more than that. So was Nicholas always lined up for that role then? As with Bastard, the actor came before the show. He was actually... And, and Birds of a Feather. He was actually, even more than any other show, Statesman was written, was written for Alan and Birds of a Feather was written for uh, the girls and Goodnight Sweetheart was not written for for Nick um, because if he hadn't said yes he wouldn't have written it it had to be him we, we had we the, we, we, we we had the idea we had the idea and we said the only person there's only two people who can play this part and Richard Beckinsale's dead 
because it had to be someone with that charm and that endearing slightly... It was, it was about adultery, after yeah. all. And so we had the idea, which was again born in an instant of idle conversation. One of us, don't know who, said Nick Lynhurst, and we contacted him through his agent and had lunch with him somewhere. And he said, if I like it, I'll do it. And and Nick, who is, I said, he's very private, um, the best thing he ever said to us about the show is um, his oldest friends think it's the second best thing he's ever done. <laughs> Which is a... I know what he meant, because they all love fools and horses, you know, but... <laughs> He's had a wonderful career, really, hasn't he? I mean, Nicholas goes back a long way, doesn't he, really? I mean, I was talking to uh, Wendy Craig the other day about his, uh, his part in, uh, in, in Butterflies, of course, and that was very different, wasn't it? Well, he was different, but he was good. He was yeah. good in that, and he was good in... He was good straight. He was, he was just... A, he's a fine, fine he was the actor. Wasn't he the boy Raymond? Yeah, he was. I mean, so his career... I mean, I mean of course, Fools and Horses was... He was the first cast. They wanted to cast the brother after they cast Rodney because John Sullivan had seen him in Butterflies and thought, that's Rodney. Um, that's why David Jason never looked like Rodney. I mean, Adele never looked like Rodney because they were going to cast a guy called N. Rytel who looked like Rodney. This year has claimed the lives of far too many people to coronavirus. One of the many we lost was the great comedian Eddie Large, one half of that fabulous double act, Little and Large. And he's asked, you know, when did you meet and all that? And he'd have the, the stock answers, you know, oh, we met by accident, you know, I ran him over on a zebra crossing, you know, <laughs> things like that. In a special interview this Christmas, Sid Little remembers his longtime comedy partner and their years together making people laugh. I'd be stood there and Eddie'd go like, uh, you know, look at him. If he turned sideways and stuck his tongue out, it'd look like a zip. If he had four more navels, he'd look like a flute. You know, <laughs> you know when he wears his blue suit, he looks like a refill for a viral. Because you know, I was thin, I was really skinny, and Eddie was on the stocky side. And that's when the comedy started coming in. That's Little Remembers Large, this festive season, only on Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Space. Not so long ago, in a time of intergalactic turmoil, the peaceful tyranny of the Galactic Empire is forever being threatened by evil anarchist forces. What was that? Morning. Anarchist forces have launched a surprise attack on a Sun Crusher's outer defense craft. Only the Sun Crusher space station can bring order back to the Empire. This is not a drill, although they probably are using drills. And only one man and one robot have the administration skills to keep bureaucracy burning bright. You are so anal. I don't be ridiculous, Brack. I don't even have an anus. That's an exhaust port. Meet Brack Nubar. That's my payslip, isn't it? It's completely blank. And X769C. My gang homeboat has been engaged. Thrill as they take on giant brides and evil geniuses. She's beautiful. Really? She looks like a giant calculator on steroids. Gasp as they look death squarely in the face and then run away. Down a garbage chute. I'm not going down there. Written and performed by Ian McNess and Richard Delafield. Stop stroking yourself. It creeps me out. <clears throat> you don't get heroes like this. Kill me now. Just get it over with. Well, I do have this letter. 
Creep space. You okay now? Yes. So I can stop holding your hand? Yes. Search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Comedy. Fresh and original. Hello, officer. I want to report a robbery. A new series about the secret world of nocturnal security. Yeah, I ordered a Chinese from the Golden Moon and they forgot to send me a can of Coke. A distinct comedy presentation. Well, yeah, I consider it an emergency. I'm gasping here. That idiot on the day shift stolen the last of my flicking tea bags. Barry Pigeon protects. Well, I'm telling you, if you lot don't sort this out, it's going to be like big trouble in little China down here. Follow the exploits of Barry Pigeon, the best night security guard in Chorley, as he discusses everything from his wife... She were too big for Zumba, so she signed up for Bumba. It's like Zumba, only they just sit on their ass and flap their arms around a bit. ...to his favourite food. I love eggs, bloody love them. Poached, scrambled, fried, <laughs> scotched, cream. I love them all! From Andrew Birtwell and Kurt Brooks, starring Roe David McClelland, and guest-starring Royston Mayo and Bruce Jackson. Columbo meets Sherlock, that's me. Barry Pigeon protects. I know what people think about this job, but it's not all sitting on your ass, drinking brews and watching Challenge TV. Uh, I sometimes bring a book as well. Watch now at distinctnostalgia.com. Hello and welcome to The Likely Dads, a new series that looks at parenting from the paternal perspective. I'm always wary of people who plan kids. If your life's that structured, (laughs) stay away from me, we're not going to get on. (laughs) A brand new show from the team behind Distinct Nostalgia. I'm Tim Vincent and each week I'll be joined by my fellow Likely Dads, Mick Ferry and Russell Kane, as well as a series of special guests to discuss different aspects of fatherhood. When a man has an urge to have a a child, it's not spoken about much, women sort of own this area. (laughs) We're sort of open it was going to be like the old films I watch where I'd just have a pipe and I'd be in a study. You just go, you're going to see your father now for ten minutes. Hello, <laughs> no, children, what have you been up to today? I'm not interested. All right, off to bed. <laughs> An MIM production for BBC Radio 4. We hope you'll join us and subscribe to The Likely Dads on BBC Sounds. Well, Lawrence and Morris, it's been lovely to talk to you, especially as I'm a huge fan of all of your hits over the years, all of them, and long may they be repeated, as it were. Um, But I just want to finish by just looking at the state of comedy today, really, and the decisions that are being made around comedy. Um, Yeah, there is some great stuff. There's some fantastic stuff being made. Um, But I, I feel as though we've gone away from the tradition of observational comedy, which I think was always a great tradition in this country, to more surreal stuff, which I, I just don't, warm to as much if I'm being honest the only one that I really enjoy on a regular basis when it's on is the comedy from Scotland um, called uh, Two Doors Down Yeah, which, I, which I've not seen it's like writing journalism in Stalinist Russia because there's so much you can't say there's so much you can't do I mean the number of times now you'll hear someone in, a, in the position of authority saying Oh, you can't say that. Well, if you can't say that, you can't write comedy. I think, I think that... I think comedy over the last sort of two or three years is probably better than it was five or six years ago. Because in the last few years, we've had catastrophe, we've had Fleabag, we've had a few... And interestingly, there are some shows on, you know, like in-your-face shows, which I think work very, very well. Sunny for Sunny Forever, I thought was very. They, I thought they were very funny shows. What's interesting on in those three shows, which I all enjoy and which are all led by women, is that 
they don't suffer from the thing that a lot of other shows suffer from, um, which is that they're not very funny at all, but there's one stupid person in it who can, who's allowed to be funny. And when you strip those shows down, although people think they're very woke, they're not woke at all because it's mostly middle-class people taking the piss out of the, out of the token working-class person, um, which seems so transparently obvious to me, but not transparently obvious to the people who are writing them and buying them. Um, there are some good shows. I'm a big fan, for example, of Plebs, which I think deserves to be on the mainstream channel and not on ITV2. Um, so I think there's some good... I think there's more good stuff out there than there was maybe five years ago when I thought that what I called... I'm sorry, you've, you've, you've pressed a button now. What I called the archaeologization of comedy, which is that there was... Uh, there used to be like five comedies a week. Instead, there were five history shows about the top twin, top ten funniest shows involving the word gusset, you know, on Channel 5 at nine o'clock. So comedy became a sort of a subject for study rather than a, a subject to, re, to renew. People love to laugh. People want to laugh. But I think that when you're sent in as a controller of television and you realise that narrative comedy is so expensive yeah. to make that why make one episode of good night sweet art when you can have a, a series of game shows yeah i think so i think that's one of the problems it is expensive it's high risk you know it that's the other thing yeah high risk they want instant success so they'll see their overnights of episode one and condemn it a failure fools and horses first series did no business and it was only, in fact, John Sullivan once said to me, only my family watched it. That was a view. And the second series, the Falkland War started. They didn't, they couldn't make it. They ran out the first series again into a second series and it became... Well, so it so became, I, think, I think, you know, there is a, a mismatch between what people want to watch and, and the so-called broad audience, you know, the, the, the people who are not hanging out at Shoreditch House every night which, of course, is actually 99.9% .9 of the population. Well, that's why Mrs Brown's but so popular. The, yes, you know, and, and you have to deal with this phenomenon of Mrs Brown boys, which I call the Donald Trump of television. No one understands it, and yet 45% of the population love it. Well, you, you must watch um, Two Doors Down. Two yeah. Doors Down, I will, yeah. I will. But people want to be funny. People want to be made to laugh, and I think... And everything's so dour in the drama department. Forget comedy. I mean... What dramas have been really uplifting? If they haven't got guns in them, nobody quite knows what to do. And so it's not just comedy, it's drama. And you will only get what your heads and executives yes. want to buy. Well, I think it says it all when my two default channels are uh, Forces TV and um, uh, talking pictures. Yes, yes, yes of course. So I, love, I love those. A channels. lot of people watch those, you know. But I watch things. I mean, going back over a longer period of time, we've always said in the drama thing, you know, shows like Six Feet Under, for example, um, or The West Wing, two Twin Peaks. Well, I'm not mentioning Twin Peaks because Twin Peaks is still a sort of crime show. But you know, to think if you made a list of great dramas which weren't cops, docs. Lawyers. and lawyers you'd be hard pressed to, to make a list of half a dozen in this country it's weird it's, it's very very complicated it's it's you could have a whole series of 
under the general heading of British smugness, you know, that we had the best television in the world 25 years ago, so we still think we have. Yeah, yeah, there is a degree of uh, smugness, isn't there, sometimes? Um, but looking back on your own careers, you've had some fantastic hits over the years. Um, if you were to be asked, you know, or you to think which was the best period out of all of those things you've been talking about uh, in this interview, when was the most special time for you? Well, it's an interesting question, that because the 80s was special because we broke in and captured it. The 90s was what you would call our Keith Richard period, where we weren't quite sure where we were at any given time because we were... Well, I would say... To... I would say... The end of the 90s I enjoyed very much. The end? The end of the 90s. Oh, I didn't. Didn't you? No. I, like, I thought everything, we... was, everything was disintegrating at no, the end. No, I thought there were, there were three great shows at the end. Yeah, they weren't the end, it was the middle. I would say, because Lawrence... You know, it, it, Lawrence is a diarist, so I never challenge him normally on his on his calendar, but I will challenge him on this one. When we had our production company, which is Alamo, and in nine and and in the period around ninety two, ninety three, ninety four, when we were writing Birds of a Feather, or writing and producing Birds of a Feather, Good Night Sweetheart, and Love Hurts, and the New Statesman, and and winning um, the Writers uh, BAFTA. And then capping it all by selling our company and paying off our mortgages. That was a pretty good time. <laughs> and I think that was sort of... I would call that the mid, you see. I would say that our heyday, when it all came together, was sort of 93 to 97. And yet when... We Lawrence, were, Lawrence thinks that's the end of the decade. Fair enough. I, we finished this book in the summer called Shooting the Pilot, which is seven of our pilot shows with an essay before each. And in order to write those... Let, let alone finding the scripts, was to go back to those times. And I think that going back over those seven scripts, which we've discussed m many of them today, uh, it was that period around the first Harvey Moon that really was the most exciting time. Uh, because, because it was all new, we weren't cynical, uh, it was a great. It was a great rush of excitement. Yeah. It was a fantastic career, and and you know, we're both very keen football fans. And it's like if you, if you win, if you win, you know, the double in in eighty three and win again in ninety three, um, you can't really complain if you only were runners up in eighty seven. So from that point of view, we've got nothing to complain about. I think the best thing I would end with by saying is that over that period of time we've discussed this afternoon. We were blessed with really good ideas. Mm -hmm. That was the main thing. And they were all different. And I always remember Alan McEwan saying, you two guys are amazing. He said, because your shows don't bear any resemblance to the next show. And I think yeah. that that series of ideas from Harvey Moon right through... I mean, you've got to remember, we also did a show set in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, and that was a comedy. Uh, so... I think the good ideas are the yes, key yes. to it. And I'm not seeing a lot of shows with good ideas. So what's next for you two then? Obviously, you know, you've got Birds of a Feather, the Christmas special, and maybe some more possibly. But what, what's, um, you know, what, what's next for you? What's, what's your plans? Because we are um, 
coming to a certain... What we were going to be doing this autumn, uh, which has now been knocked on to next autumn, was we were going to be doing a live tour of talking about our career. And we've got two or three projects, but a project from scratch, which nowadays, which used to take a year to get an idea on the screen, now takes three years to get an idea on the screen. Well, you know, I've got a marker down in three years' time that I intend to be senile. So I don't really want to, you know, do something with quite that long a lead period. We've got two or three projects, you know, one of which is to write a, a, quite a meaty memoir, which we've pitched, and, and maybe do this tour, and maybe do Birds. We've got a couple of other shows in development. But there comes a time when, if something really delicious is offered to us, if someone comes around my house with a chocolate eclair, I'm definitely going to eat it, but I'm not going to, win, but I'm not going to enter the bake-off. Fabulous, fabulous. Lawrence and Morris, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you too. Okay, it's good talking to you. The wonderfully talented uh, Lawrence Marks and Morris Grant there speaking to me as part of this uh, Comedy Writing Legends series. And don't forget that um, that was part two of that uh, uh, particular episode. Part one still exists on the Distinct Nostalgia player at distinctnostalgia.com um, or wherever you get uh, your uh, podcasts. And um, coming up in future weeks and months, uh, we'll be continuing our Comedy Legends uh, series. We'll be going to be hearing from Dick Clements and Ian Lafrenet, who were mentioned uh, a little bit uh, in that interview with uh, Marks and Gran. Uh, they, of course, wrote uh, Porridge and uh, The Likely Lads, among other things. We'll be hearing from um, Jan Etherington, who penned uh, Second Thoughts, and from David Renwick, who, of course, is the creator and the writer behind none other than One Foot in the Grave. So that's all to come. Happy Christmas and make sure you stay tuned to Distinct Nostalgia over the festive period and into the new year. Lots of wonderful things on the way. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM and you can hear lots more programmes via the Distinct Nostalgia player. There's Hartley Hare and a Pitkins reunion. So Hartley, nice to meet you. Can I shake your paw? You can shake my hand, yes. Is it a paw or a hand? it's a paw, really. I call it a hand. (laughs) I remember you going to the dentist. Oh, yes, I went to the dentist once. And you weren't very happy about it, were you? No, I wasn't very happy about it. I hated it. Corrie and Carry On star Amanda Barry remembers being a children's TV presenter in the 70s. Because it was live, they were always either overrunning or underrunning, so there were mad people waving at you. Mm. I remember one day we were really underrunning so I hopped on the wall and walked along it. Oh, I got in such trouble. They said, you are teaching children to walk on walls. We're back in Hartley to meet the original female inspectors from Juliet Bravo. So when you come to do any filming, you've got this skirt on and this jacket and the coat was cold. The hat, the first hat we wore wasn't reinforced. It wasn't a helmet. And I had a handbag. No pockets. There wasn't a single pocket in my jacket. I mean, talk about ill-equipped. <laughs> and there's even an appearance from Gonzo in our great Muppets reunion. Dr. Gutnick works on me. I've had my nose lifted. I've had, you know, everything fixed. Everything's been lifted. <laughs> These programmes and many more are all available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Get in touch via the Contact Us page on the website. Bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. 
We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.